Alright, so we just finished our sermon series on love last week. I just hold on to it for the moment. So love is obviously one of the most important themes within Christianity. It's one of the central components of God's character. In the first letter of John, we're reminded of this with these words. God is love. It's such a simple statement, and yet it's so deep. Love's a crucial part of who God is. It defines God. And it's also meant to define us. It's meant to define Christians. But love isn't the only defining characteristic of God, nor is it the only defining characteristic of Christians. There are other characteristics of God that are inherent characteristics of who God is and are integral parts of who we're meant to be. Perhaps you can think of some. Perhaps you can think even of another characteristic that's as important as love is. What do you think? If love's one of the key characteristics of who God is, what would another be? Forgiveness. Forgiveness, yeah. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Caring. Caring, yeah. Power. Power, yeah. Sorry, did you say characteristic? Yeah, what's an integral part of who God is? And also what we're called to be. Merciful. Merciful, yep. Followers for us. Gracious. Gracious, yep. Just. Just. Who said just? Yep. (laughs) So that's getting closer to what I was thinking of for today. These are all true, by the way, everything you've said, obviously. Um, Still one thing that's closer to just, I think, that I'm thinking of that I'm going to talk about today. Do you want to keep going? A few other options, possibilities? Truth. Truth. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Good. Good. Okay, we're getting yeah. really close now. <laughs> is, there a, is there a word? It's just a good. Righteous. Righteous? Perfect. <laughs> it's a word we don't use in our everyday life very often at all. Unless we're exclaiming. Yes. <laughs> Holy. Holy. Alright. <laughs> Holy, definitely. I think if, if love is one of the key characteristics of who God is, we can say God is love. I think holiness or holy is an equally important characteristic. God is holy. And it's something that we are also called to be. So today we're going to talk about this topic of holiness. Both God's holiness and our call to holiness. So with that in mind, let's take a look at today's Bible reading from 1 Peter. Um, who would like to read? It'll be on the screen. Who would like to read? Yeah, I'll read it. Yep, cool. So it's, a, it's extracts of 1 Peter 1 and 2. Go for it. God the Father, you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. You love Jesus Christ even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. 
So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. The scripture says you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favourites. He will judge and reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. So get rid of all evil behaviour. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy and all unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. And you are living stones that, that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Others stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that. For you are a chosen people, you are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Thanks, Asher. All right. So holiness is integral to who God is and to the Christian life. You're actually all meant to be holy people. Mel, you should be a holy man. Same with you, Malcolm, Neil. Nicole, you're a holy woman. Rachel, Rose, I don't know whether you've thought about yourself in that way, as a holy man or a holy woman. When you think of a holy man or a holy woman, what does that conjure up in your, in your mind? Holiness isn't one of those words that we, we use much in our current society. It's not in our culture. It's a word that we don't use and we don't really understand. It has an elusive meaning. So it's actually worth thinking about what it actually means because it's used a lot in the Bible. So when you think of holiness, what ideas, what thoughts, what images spring to mind? Who'd like to share some? Well, it's interesting, and the world thinks about like those guys you see in India, you know, in, living in the frozen wilderness, you know, doing their tenant exercises and, you know, wearing basic clothing and, you know, red dots in the centre of their head or white or so forth. That's one sort of view of holiness. Yeah, it's a good one. When Nicole and I travelled in 2004, we were out in the countryside in India, in the middle of nowhere. It must have been in a taxi, I guess. Do you remember going past this little yeah. roadside shrine, just this, with this 
this statue with five or six arms, and, and this, little, this man is holding that with a long beard, I think, and, mm. and we stopped and took a photo with him. He, he was a holding man. What else comes to mind? A bald head, man with a bald head and a frock. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> when you think of holiness, what do you think of? Goodness. Goodness, yep. Purity. Purity, yep. Set apart. Wisdom. Wisdom. Oh. Set apart, okay. yep. <laughs> so, here's a picture of a holy man that Neil was uh, describing. This was a Buddhist monk who we gave a lift to when we were in Varanasi in India. Um, and when I think of holiness, I think of those sort of images. These are what comes into most people's heads. But also when I think of holiness, I think of light in darkness. The light is holy. This gives the idea of separateness. Holiness has something to do with being separated and far away from darkness, far away from evil. Holiness makes me think of water and cleansing as well, and washing. But most of all, when I think of holiness, I think of God. There's that connection, isn't there, between God and holiness. The idea of holiness is intimately connected with the idea of God. In fact, in the Bible, God describes holiness first and foremost in terms of himself. In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God spoke to Moses and he had a lot to say about holiness in Leviticus. He talked about the distinction between holiness and unholiness. Where holy was pure, unholy was impure. It was clean versus unclean, or right versus wrong, beautiful versus ugly. Holiness is about a distinction. It's about being separated from evil, being separated from what's wrong. And God described this holiness in Leviticus as emanating, coming from himself. God said, you are to be holy because I am holy. So if we want to understand holiness, we've got to look at God. God's character tells us about holiness. So think about God. What do we know about him? Well, we know he's big. He's powerful. He's amazing. He created the universe in the next picture. He's creative. He's deep. He's huge. He's also good and loving. We see him on the cross. He cares about us. He's just. He cares about justice. When we start to understand what God is like, that's when we start to understand what holiness is. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah had a vision of heaven. And this is what he wrote down about it. I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robes filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundation. The entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over, I'm doomed. And I am a sinful man, I have filthy lips. I live among the people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Remarkable passage that is, what an awesome passage. What a strange passage, though. It's powerful. It starts off by saying about these two, about these mighty creatures, these seraphim. 
I don't know what serifs are, whether they're even real or whether they're simply images to help us understand deeper truths. But either way, these seraphim, these heavenly creatures, seem incredibly impressive. So I read about the word seraph in, the, in, the, in Hebrew, and it means a, fire, a fiery, burning creature. And when these fiery creatures, these incredible creatures, called out, their voices caused the ground to shake in Isaiah's vision. The creatures wouldn't still fear and awe in me if I saw them. I'd be frightened. And you can see in the passage that they call out to God about his holiness. So these incredibly fearful, inspiring creatures. And they're actually afraid of God. They actually come to God in fear. They cover their faces. So you can see there's a real picture here of holiness being connected with fear and respect and awe. In the time that this passage was written in the ancient world, people understood God in this way, that if you saw his face, you would die. So the seraphim cover their faces. Just like the seraphim, Isaiah's response was also one of awe and fear. And he wasn't afraid of these seraphim. He was actually afraid of God. God himself. It's all over, Isaiah said. I'm doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and yet I've seen the king. So in this passage about holiness, there's this clear implied link between God's holiness and his incredible power that should instill us with fear. There's a link between this holiness and this awesomeness and his goodness and justice as well. To the extent that anyone who is unholy, anyone who has evil in them or is sinful, can't stay alive in his presence. Which is why Isaiah was so afraid. The idea of death because of unholiness and sin is probably a pretty strange idea for us to think about. But it's there in black and white in the Bible. And so if we take the Bible seriously and we treat it as God's communication to humans, then we can't ignore these words. There is a connection there between death and unholiness. The Bible speaks repeatedly about God's holiness, meaning that he is good and pure, morally clean and perfect, and that we, or anything that isn't, perfect, anything that has any evil or impurity in it, can't even exist in the presence of God. To our modern ears, that's a pretty jarring <laughs> thing to hear, but it's what the Bible says. The implication is that I have evil within me, and I, I know I do, or if we have evil in us, and I know we all do, then we have no right to exist and to live in the presence of this holy God in heaven. In very simple terms, God's holiness coupled with our unholiness is why our natural fate after death is not eternal life in the presence of God, but instead it's death and darkness. Now, like all of you no doubt see, I can see how intolerant this sounds today. But take a step back and think about this in terms of personal emotions and justice. I was thinking about Ukraine last night. This is a photo of seven-year-old Alina Lam. She was at her school in a place called Sumi Oblast when it was struck by a bomb. She didn't survive. 
Since the war began, many, many thousands of people, including hundreds of children, have been killed by bombs. And these bombs have been dropped because Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, ordered his troops to invade and take over the Ukraine. So whatever your politics are, whatever you think about whether the West should get involved in this conflict or not, something at least is clear. Many innocent people, many children, have been brutally killed because of an evil dictator who started an unnecessary and an unrighteous war. This Russian president, he's evil. His actions have led to unbearable trauma for many, many families. So here's a question for you. If you were the parents of one of those children, if you were the parent of one of those children who had been killed in the war, would you invite Putin over to your house and have dinner with you? Would you welcome him with open arms? Would you prepare a beautiful meal for him? Would you spend the evening chatting with him, trying to make him feel comfortable and welcome? Would you prepare a spare bedroom for him and invite him to live with you? I wouldn't. I can't, my, can't see myself ever wanting to have Putin in my house. If you have a normal human response to what he's done, I imagine it's going to be a response of disgust, anger. People generally don't want to come into contact with and spend time with other people who have hurt them deeply. We don't want to hang around people who have committed terrible acts of evil. We don't want to hang around people that haven't lived up to our standard of goodness. So why should God be any different? Why would God want to be around people that have evil in them and have darkness in them? But here is the remarkable truth. God is different than us. It's true that the Bible speaks about God demanding holiness in us. But it's equally true that God speaks about God making us holy. The very next part of the vision of Isaiah that we read before speaks about God making Isaiah holy again. Directly after Isaiah had trembled in fear that he would die because he had seen a holy God, this is what happened. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this See, this coal, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. We read from the first letter that the Apostle Peter wrote in the Bible earlier. And in it, Peter quoted this famous verse from Leviticus. You must be holy because I am holy. Now that sounds very much like an instruction or an order, doesn't it? You be holy now, okay? You better be holy. And no doubt it is an instruction. But I'm going to suggest another way of looking at that line, at that sentence. Would God actually be saying this? I am holy. I expect everything around me to be holy. So you will be holy. I'll make sure of that. I'll make sure that you are holy because I am holy. Whether or not that's the intention of this particular verse, I certainly think that something in 1 Peter suggests that God plays a big role in us becoming holy. 
In verse 18, Peter wrote this. God paid a ransom from the empty life you had inherited to save you from it. And then in verse 22, he wrote, you were cleansed from your sins. And then the next chapter, in verse 5, Peter wrote this. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. And then he said, God called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God expects holiness of us, but God makes us holy. I first preached on, on this passage in 1 Peter, actually, and on holiness back in 2013. And on the night before I preached, I remember preparing for the sermon, and the cold wand had passed, and we both simultaneously smelt something like an electrical burning, plasticky type of smell. <laughs> so after a quick rush around the house, we isolated the smell to our study, where we had a few pieces of equipment. I always have things plugged in and turned on in the study, don't I? We had a modem there, a fax machine, and a computer server. Couldn't see any fire, but it was obvious that one of these bits of electrical equipment had a component in it that was burning. So I turned off the power at the power point and investigated further, and it seemed that the smell was coming from the computer. And the smell was horrible. It had overpowered that whole room and the whole house, spread out throughout the entire house. This one dirty, unclean piece of equipment was actually destroying the whole atmosphere in an otherwise clean-smelling house. So it was an awful smell. I had to take the computer outside, take it away from us. It strikes me that this is an, an analogy of what holiness is a bit like and God's intolerance for holiness. Just like that computer's uncleanness made it impossible for me to leave it in the house, it's impossible for God to live around the smell of evil, to live with evil people. And yet, just like people are important to God, this computer in the study was important to me. So later that evening, <laughs> so later that evening, I went back out to the backyard, opened up the computer, and looked for the problem so that I could remove the damaged component and replace it. I wanted that computer to be functional. I wanted it to be working, and I wanted it to have a clean inside. So I wanted to bring it back in the house. Spend time with us again in the study. <laughs> it's the same for God. He wants us to be clean. He wants to take away our unholiness and bring us back into home with Him, back into His presence. So God expects holiness of us. We fail to be holy, and so God makes us holy. In many places, the Bible speaks about our inability to cleanse ourselves, our inability to forgive ourselves, to save ourselves. We actually can't make ourselves holy. The good news is, though, God can. And he does make us holy. And this happens somehow through the mystery of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. But here's the really great paradox of it all. Although we can't make ourselves holy, we do need God for this, at the same time, we can't be holy without our own effort, our own part. One of the great truths of Christianity is that God pours out his grace or his gift of forgiveness on those who trust Jesus. Our sins are forgiven. We haven't earned that. We can't earn that. We're not made holy through our own effort. 
But that's only half of the story. There's another side of the story that almost seems contradictory, and it's certainly a paradox. In 1 Peter, this paradox is everywhere. Chapter 1, verse 17 says, God will judge and reward you based on what you do. In chapter 2, verse 8, it says this, People stumble because they don't obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. And of course, the quote back in chapter 1, along with the instructions following it, <coughs> you are to be holy because I am holy, so get rid of all evil behaviour. Um, be one without deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. <laughs> <laughs> seems to me that God places a lot of emphasis on what we do, how we live. What we do seems to have eternal consequences. Yes, God makes us holy, but we, we can make ourselves unholy. So there's no, and there's no room for unholiness in heaven. According to 1 Peter, our salvation, our holiness is very much dependent on what we do, on our actions. Jesus actually spoke about this too. He used different words, but the message was the same. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about perfection. He almost quoted the words of Leviticus, just replacing the word holy with perfect. You are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he spoke about this perfection as being something that, that hurts and that is difficult to achieve. So tonight, if you get a chance, or this week, let me encourage you to open up Matthew 5 to 8 and read those four chapters because it's all about living a holy life and it's about how hard and difficult it actually is. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke about all the hard things we have to do to be holy. Whether you think they're hard or not, I guess it's a matter of opinion. But Jesus spoke about praying. He spoke about fasting. He spoke about giving to those in need. These are the sort of things that actually cultivate holiness. We should be praying, doing it often, pouring out our hearts to God and listening to His heart. We should be fasting, remembering that God's our real sustenance, that there's things that are deeper than the physical. We should be giving often, remembering that what we have in this life isn't eternal. It doesn't last. And in any case, it's not even ours, it's God's. And it's for everyone. So being holy requires work and training and discipline. But after all, followers of Jesus are called disciples. So we should expect we should have to do some discipline. As Jesus spoke about perfection, he didn't just speak about the things we need to cultivate in order to be holy either. He also spoke about the hard things we need to get rid of from ourselves. One of the most challenging verses in the Bible comes from the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pull it out. For it's better for you to go about like blind than to be thrown into the fires of hell. Obviously Jesus isn't literally asking us to pull out our eye because it's actually not my eye that makes me unholy. It doesn't cause me to sin. It's actually what's in my heart that causes me to sin. So I think Jesus is trying to tell us that we've got to make hard decisions they're going to change us. We've got to do radical things in our lives to help with this transformation so that we can be holy. And it's worth making these decisions and doing these radical things because the reward for a holy person 
It's a brilliant and an amazing eternal life with each other and with God. So, Matthew and Simon, do you want to take the pen and the paper around? So on that piece of paper, perhaps you could write on top of it, you are to be holy, or I am to be holy because God is holy. And then there's a whole lot of blank space underneath it. I want us to spend five minutes in our final part of church today before our final song of notices. Just quietly reflecting and praying, asking God to give some insight in what each one of us needs to do personally. What do you need to do personally in your life to work at holiness? The question each one of us needs to think about is going to vary from person to person. Ask yourself, what do I need to do, God? What do I need to do? What do I need to work on? Do I need to set aside time to pray daily? Do I need to set aside time to read my Bible daily? Do I need to listen to music with Christian words in daily? Do I need to stop swearing? Do I need to change my television habits? Do I need to go on silent and free? Or stop gambling? Do I need to change my lookout on the internet? So can I come in? to you in these final five minutes of the sermon, spend some time just personally praying and writing down what you think God's saying to you about how you what you need to change to work on holiness.